0: Welcome to Pure Curiosity. This is your host, Iris McAlpin, and I invite you to join me in this exploration of what it means to be human in our modern world. Here you may find answers, but I hope you'll find even more questions and allow curiosity to guide you forward. Let's begin. Hello, how are you this morning?
1: I'm doing great.
0: I'm so excited to talk to you. I know I always say that, but I don't have people on here that I'm not excited to talk to. So it's good to to see your face. And yeah, I love if you could start just by telling our listeners a little bit about you and, and your story and how you got into trauma healing work.
1: You bet. So uh, I left my career after 13 years a few years ago, which just kind of at a massive burnout place in my life. and. Had a really great run with my old career in real estate, but just felt really out of place. I felt like I had all of these stories that lived inside of me and selling real estate wasn't really going to ever (laughs) mirror any type of manifesting better relationships and a better quality of life. And I always wanted to write and had always written for quite some time. And so in 2018, I walked away from my career and bought several plane tickets and just traveled for quite some time and started sharing little bits of my story on social media. And then I've had this weird relationship with social media where I've taken months off at a time because it feels overwhelming. I am a late to life discovered introvert and (laughs) really like simplicity and quiet and being alone as much as possible. So I get kind of overwhelmed by social media too, but I've also found an incredible community of other survivors there and feel like there's this really special corner amongst a lot of the stuff that goes on on social media of these people who are connected to one another, supporting one another. And it's just been beautiful to, to be a part of that.
0: I'm so interested. So before you started talking about trauma on social media, was this something you were already pretty open about in your life with people that you interacted with, or was this a pretty big departure from your usual subject matter?
1: That's such a good question. So I had a, um, in my career, I had a couple of big parties every year, an annual Fourth of July, an annual New Year's Eve, and just always had this sense of community tied to my career. In that space, zero knew anything. And that's what was so bizarre is like I had this kind of public image of this guy who's got it together. Um, I think there were always questions of just like, gosh, why is he always alone when he's not working. And I've also been the guy who's always had a few really close friends that are deeply a part of my life. And those are the ones who've always known this is the real story of what's going Mm -hmm. on. I've always been super active in therapy. That's been a part of my life since I was 18 years old, kind of out of necessity. But I love that question because I think that that was part of the conflict is I lived so much of my life presenting that my life represented something that it really didn't. Mm-hmm. I think when I look back at pictures too, in my face, you could tell I was a, I was hurting. All, all the adult pictures I, I look at times and I look at my eyes and my smile, and I think to myself, "Your eyes look dead, and you don't know how to smile. You literally, physically, your mouth is not even making the correct shape that would express <laughs> joy. Like it's it's bizarre to look back and see that." But yeah, that was, that was a really great question. Thank you.
0: It's so interesting to to hear you say that because I've never heard anyone else say that. And it's something that I've thought as well, looking back at old pictures of myself, where I feel like I look like I was, at least in my memory, I thought, oh, in this picture, I I looked like I was having so much fun. And then I go back and look at it and it's like, oh my gosh, I really, my eyes, I look dead. I look absolutely miserable. And I was, but I thought I was, I was fooling everyone. And maybe I was to some degree, but probably not as well as I thought I was.
1: It makes you question, am I going to look back five years from now, 10 years from now, and see something that I'm not aware of? Probably so. Probably. It's probably not the same pain, but there's probably, if you're on this journey of self-discovery and overcoming trauma, there's always going to be more to evolve the more that you learn and the more you have space to accept New environments, new experiences. But yeah, I think that that's true for a lot of us that we just, at that time, we don't, we didn't know how abnormal carrying, you know, for me, CPTSD, just carrying that for decades and not even knowing what that was.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you, you said something about looking back and, and how this, this trauma healing process is a long one. Cause I think sometimes people have this idea that one day we're just going to wake up and just be f- fully, fully healed and and never have to contend with any of these thoughts or feelings ever again. And, And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's true, but I think it is kind of this ever unfolding process. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I agree. I don't think that there's ever going to be an arrival point. I think about some really close, like one of my really close friends who's 75 who's like a mother figure to me in the conversations that we have. Of course she's settled in her life in certain ways and she can look back on the experiences and and give me advice and input on how things could have been different. My best friend's parents are the same way they're in their early 70s and they're able to give feedback and input to things that you know certainly make a difference. But as a whole, when I think about my life progressing, I do believe that we become more comfortable in our skin, but through the lens of trauma, we have to recognize it changed your experience in your skin. Mm. It changed the way that you see everything around you. And even if you didn't know that that's what happened, it's grounding that trauma and understanding and reprocessing that experience so that you can feel present and engaged. I mentioned people who are older because they didn't have access to the things that we've had access to. And I'm obsessed with aging. I'm obsessed with thinking about what is my life going to be like when I'm older. And I think it's because I lost so much time when I was younger that I feel this race against the clock. And um, I I don't believe that I'll ever face symptoms from my CPTSD or um, prior trauma the way that I have in the past. I don't think that it will ever come back physically, emotionally, or mentally, like it has. But I think that I will still have really hard days, um, not be quite sure what to do with my anxiety or depression at times. But even in those moments, it's grounding myself and saying, I've been through this before, my body and my mind have been through a lot. And I've just started to undo that. And it's going to take me time to adjust.
0: Yeah, gosh, I relate to everything you just said. I'm curious when trauma and CPTSD, crossed your radar. Because I don't know if this was your experience, but for a long time, I just thought I was super messed up and I didn't really understand why. And I was thinking of myself in really pathologizing terms. And I had felt very pathologized by mental health professionals. And when I first understood what CPTSD was, which was quite a bit into my recovery already, it changed so much for me. So how did that come into your awareness and and what impact did that have learning about trauma?
1: Probably similar to what you just said. I had been in therapy already for 13 years and we weren't addressing trauma. I was 18 years old the first time that I shared about being sexually abused when I was 12 by a man who was 40. And the way that that was handled was uh, traumatic is the word that comes to mind. I was immediately told that I needed to repent for that behavior and mm-hmm. I mean, just really bizarre, really sick, uneducated, cruel mindsets about a 12-year-old boy who was super confused. So to clarify to your audience, I came out as gay when I was 38 years old. Today is the five-year anniversary of that day, yes. which was <laughs> beautiful this morning to think about, but I am... certain that I was born gay. I believe it's absolutely in our DNA. I think that when I look back at the evidence of me being a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, the signs were all there. One of the things the religious cultures tend to do is scapegoat being abused and tying that to the outcome of sexuality. And it's done so much damage. Um, it's, It's the equivalent of saying that I was sexually abused at 12 by a gay man no, I was sexually abused by a pedophile. Yeah, Sexuality has nothing to do with pedophilia. Those are two very different topics. So I think that that was, the issue is that I was battling with my sexuality and this abuse that happened um, when I was a kid. And I was sent down the wrong path. So for 13 years, all we did was attempt to change my sexuality. We never addressed any type of trauma. So in my early thirties, that's when the compound hit and my brain went one direction. My body went the other and was just like, we don't even know who we are and we can't function together anymore. See ya. And my life fell apart.
0: There's so much I want to say here. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, cause I think I listened to uh, an interview you did on another podcast where you talked about how your therapist would not even, entertain any kind of conversation about your sexuality. And I just am imagining how re-traumatizing that would be. This person that you were going to for help won't even let you show up fully as yourself. And there's so much shame already there from a religious context. And so I'd be interested to hear you speak to this. I can just imagine that that would just compound the shame in, in unimaginable ways.
1: Well, like you were saying earlier, you didn't even know that you had trauma. You didn't name it as trauma. There was no identity of CPTSD. And we just assume that we are at fault. Like there's just something severely wrong with us. I never doubted his input. And it wasn't just him. I had been to all of the Exodus conferences, I had read every book. The path was mapped out for me at 18 that just said you have one option, and that's to heal your sexuality. And I believed that I didn't argue that there was not a part of me that was resistant. I think that there had just been so much abuse. The abuse in my home started when I was five years old and there was consistent sexual abuse from five until I was 14. And at 13, I was removed out of my parents' home and put in uh, foster care for a while due to other abuse. I mean, like this is just not going to be a kid who has the, the strength to say, no, 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 I think you're wrong. I think that actually I'm just born gay and I was abused. Like That's just not a conversation that's going to happen. The extent of trauma that came about from being involved in an evangelical Christian culture, I think did more damage and more harm than the sexual abuse when I was 12. It's such psychological torture to constantly feel this need to say, I'm sorry about who I am and this these ideas of repentance and this idea that there's there's a way there's a model to fall in line and once you get to that point god is going to do something inside of you that changes all of those things and finally you feel relief and i was completely committed to that from 18 to 31 um it was it was all i knew and i would just gut myself so you know Part of it, too, when we talk about trauma, we talk about grief, we talk about what we didn't know. Um, As exciting as it is to come out at 38, it also came with a shitload of grief. Looking back at my 20s and being able to say, I can't ever get those years back. And the reality is, is today at 43, if any of those people came across my path, they are not people I would have a conversation with, have coffee with, want to get to know on any level. I was part of an environment Because of what I was born into, a really cruel, really uneducated environment. And that's hard to grapple with. It's really difficult to look back and just say, these aren't my people. And in any conscious, healthy state, I would have never chosen this environment or to participate. So I look at how hard I tried and how hard I was committed to something due to my lack of education. And that's a real pain. And to know that it's still going on, that people are still fighting and sending these messages that are just so harmful to people who have experienced trauma, the, the queer community, like it's just, it's across the board.
0: Yeah. This is something that I think can be a charged topic because religion is, is a very charged topic. And I, I see a lot of people in my practice actually who've experienced pretty significant or in some cases, very significant religious trauma. So for people that, that maybe don't even have a sense of, of what that is and and why that can be so insidious. I know you started to speak to this, but how do you think about religious trauma?
1: Psychological torture. Yeah. Just the constant, everything's on you and everything is uh, spiritualized. Everything is about having faith and that faith being stronger than science, stronger than humanity, stronger than injustice. It's just all about that faith. And you think back to the impacts of what I needed at that time was a professional trauma-informed therapist to say, the reason that your hands are shaking so bad in this parking lot and you can't put your keys in your car is because you have what's called complex post-traumatic stress disorder. This is elongated by years of unaddressed trauma, and instead you hear... Memorize this Bible verse and think about that verse like it's just so asinine when you think about The impacts of the brain the mind the body What happens to us through trauma? If you find comfort through religion, that's fine. However, there's no such thing as a spiritual being that changes our nervous system That's not a real thing. Our nervous systems are part of our humanity and when you continue to to elevate faith above the impacts of trauma and convince someone that prayer or memorizing Bible verses is is what heals trauma. You're delaying their ability to ever feel whole inside themselves. So, and I'm sure you know this from your own experience potentially, or experiences with your clients. It's also such a vulnerable position because you're talking about the creator of the world. Yeah. So the impacts of like, okay, I know when I was five and I had a fever of 102, that I was taught at that moment I was terrified I was going to die. I was not taken to the doctor. My parents were very faith based in their approach of just like you know, a doctor can't do what God can do, and I laid on that couch as a five year old hallucinating. I can tell you the feeling of the wool couch on my bare back, and I just was drenched with sweat and. That was how I supposedly became a born-again Christian, was I was taught in that moment about heaven or hell because I was asking, am I going to die? Is something going to happen? And um, even the concept of a five-year-old making a decision about their eternity, how sick is that? How sick is that to say there's this afterlife where people not like us are tortured forever, but you by following these instructions, get to go somewhere else. I mean, that's just I think back to stuff like that. When you get out of that environment as the years go on, you're you just kinda gasp of like, I can't believe that I believed that. And these people were doing so much harm and avoiding taxes and denying racism and like, I mean, just harming everybody everywhere while denying anything other than being holy and righteous before God. It's really, really gross.
0: Yeah, well, and then there's this additional piece of like, if you are struggling, particularly with mental health, that that's a personal defect, that there's something wrong with you, that you're not praying hard enough, that you're out of alignment with God in some way. And so it just piles on more shame on top of of everything else.
1: I think that's the uneducated piece where when people talk about a Christian therapist, there's a lot of conflict in that. I don't see where religion would have to do with therapy. When you're talking about the dysfunction of the human mind and body relationships, what does that have to do with religion? When you're talking about your nervous system being hijacked by experiences where you're constantly in fight or flight mode because of how unsafe experiences with other people are or the noise of traffic or different impacts that's just not a place to tell the survivor, well, if you can surrender that to this other being, well that if that being is not gonna come in and take that brain and polish it off and rearrange all the damage that's been done, you're literally delaying someone else's healing. You're 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 dismissing I my quote that I always say is it's putting band aids on bullet wounds.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, I'll just share a little bit about my experience with that. I haven't really talked about it much, but you know, I I'm a bisexual person, and I will say it's still challenging for me to talk about because of the the religious messaging that I got growing up. I was pretty lucky by comparison to some, where my family wasn't particularly religious, so I wasn't getting it at home, but. I went to a Southern Baptist school for eight years where every single day we were getting the Hellfire and Brimstone lecture. And how sexuality at all really was was deviant, but particularly any kind of homosexuality or bisexuality was a one-way ticket to eternal damnation. And even though I didn't fully believe it, I think just being inundated with those messages day after day after day, year after year after year has an effect on our our self-image. There's just no way that it doesn't.
1: It absolutely does. And I also think that if you were ever exposed to purity culture, that's another piece that's just has done quite a bit of damage where the rules are so rigid and it's just so bizarre. It has nothing to do with actual pleasure or like enjoying your body. It's all about these really rigid, bizarre things. And I think that, my God, seeing that movement change. Have you watched that much where, you know, even the guy who wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, that book just did so much damage. He's come out recently and said that he in no way identifies with Christianity. And he's so sorry for,
0: Interesting. you know,
1: the book that he put out. Um, he's been very vocal about um, changing his platform to just say I was, you know, a young kid, and this is what I was taught, and he recently went through a divorce, which is just fascinating oh, when interesting. you think about like a book that was such a huge part of that movement. Yeah, I think that that's a big piece too. Like in the way that sexuality is discussed is just it's just really uninformed. So yeah, if you want to talk about sexuality through the lens of religion you're talking about a lot of psychological torture. You're talking about a lot of pain that someone's going to experience because they're given the advice that you can either be Christian and fall into these categories or not have any type of uh, love from this creator of the world and, quote, choose these other behaviors. It's really damaging.
0: How did you start to find your way out of this? Because I think part of what can be so terrifying about relie- or leaving religious communities is that threat to belonging. I think part of what makes religion so appealing is that you're automatically part of a group, and obviously we've evolved to need to be in community. So making a conscious decision to remove yourself from community can feel like a life or death threat.
1: I'm glad you said that because I think that if people just knew that there were people like us out there who are saying, no, I I understand. I was part of that community and I was, you know, very dependent. Like right now, all I'm thinking about are these 12 and 13 year olds who are sitting in their bedroom and don't have a single person in the world to speak out loud about what's torturing them internally. And they're growing up in a home where those rules are rigid and it's very clear what's acceptable and what's not. So I I, I can't claim to have had a breaking moment where I looked and said, Oh, I see things clearly. I was so broken. My mental health was in such a severe state. Um, I was the vice president of an organization and I had to go in and just turn my keys in and just say, I'm not functioning. And gosh, it was it was just really dark. And that's when I started, about 10 months later, is when I finally started trauma-informed therapy and started to be exposed to a different world. And it still took me years to walk away from recognizing how harmful so much of that therapy had been. But that was my introduction to EMDR. And there was just this steady decrease in anything that had to do with it being my responsibility to pray harder and fight harder and surrender more of the sin and, you know, fall in that timeline and an increase into, holy shit, I'm fascinated about my nervous system. I'm fascinating to find out that is what my brain has done. When I had never even heard of the ACE score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how does that happen? You've know, right. in therapy for 13 years Same. and never even heard of an ACE score. So I can't claim I think that that's why I have such a hard edge about it now because there's a sense of naivety in it where I wish that I had these profound moments of saying, no, this is not right. And having this reaction in my body, Iris, I didn't, I was Mm -hmm. so beat down and I was so lacking any sense of self or security that I did what I was told until my brain and body, like, like I said earlier, literally just said, yeah, we're not functioning. There's nothing else that we can do in this space with it the way that it is that is what you know made such a big difference and then of course coming out like the coming out process for me had so little to do with sexuality it was more of just like oh my god i feel comfortable in my skin oh my god i feel like a whole person holy shit, when i breathe i actually feel oxygen inside of my body for the first time and then of course going back to those pictures that we were saying i'm just like you can see a six month difference of the structure in my face changed after I came out where it was like, that guy actually knows how to smile that, that heaviness in his eyes. It's just, it's gone. So again, I wish that I had these like strong moments of recognizing how to fight back and discover, but it it really was just a, a, a scary breaking process of survival where I had no choice, but to seek other options and start figuring out over time, that what we were doing what we're investing in just was not working.
0: Yeah, I love that you add in the overtime piece again. I just think it's so important because we live in this instant gratification culture where people expect to just, you know, in an instant feel different. And I guess the way I always think about it is that, you know, if we're not fully comfortable sharing parts of our story or aspects of ourselves, there's probably a good reason for that and it takes time to to develop that sense of safety within ourselves. And it may also take time to get yourself into a safe environment where that's even going to be okay for you to start to address.
1: And this is what I want to say to anyone listening who falls in that category. If you are given instructions on how to overcome trauma that don't feel attainable, it's probably because they're not. But we will go through phases and periods where today, when I have a really bad day, or or if I feel depression setting in years ago, that used to also create a lot of anxiety of just, oh God, what have I not surrendered? And why is this? And then I go read Job and I do a cleanse, like whatever. I'm just like <laughs> doing all of these things because I felt really responsible. Where now on those days, I get to my journal. I put my hand on my chest, I do breath work, and I just say to myself, your body needs some rest right now. Depression for you tends to show up when there's a conflict of some sort of weight that you're not recognizing and your body and your brain is just saying, hey, I really, really need a break. And it feels unbelievable to be in in connection and alignment with my body like that. Um, I've also used medication multiple times to help with anxiety and depression. I am a huge science person who feels like, is the pharmaceutical industry corrupt? Yes, it absolutely is. It's also profound in what it's helped so many hurting people find relief with. So I'm always very clear when I talk about being in tune with my body. I have not used medication a lot, but the times that I have, it was a lifesaver. And I just feel like there's a lot of shame and confusion around a lot of the, the conversations that are saying, the way is this and it's this connection. And I, I absolutely agree that us being connected in our minds and bodies is profound and I'm pro whatever helps you get there.
0: Yeah, I completely agree because I it's just so fascinating how differently things work for people. Like, I love that you talk about EMDR. It's something I don't really talk about because it kind of backfired for me. It was my nervous system was in such a state and maybe, maybe it was the practitioner. Maybe it was the timing, maybe, you know, who knows, but it sent me into a catatonic state a number of times. So I ended up going to somatic experiencing, which I talk about a lot, but EMDR is incredibly helpful for so many people. And was that part of the process? Cause I've, I've heard you say a number of times in the, Podcast, you know, that you're connected to your physical experiences, like remembering feeling the wool couch or just feeling oxygen in your lungs for the first time. Was EMDR something that helped you reconnect to your body?
1: I would say I still struggle with the body connection quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um I still see a therapist weekly now. And with the the that is the biggest hardship for me is going inside of my body, especially in her presence. If we're ever there and she's trying to do anything somatic with me, I just shut down. I think I get, I become afraid. But what I've learned over time is EMDR felt really safe. It was fascinating though, because there were times I would do EMDR and I would have to ask my therapist to back up. I felt like he was too close. It made me really uncomfortable. So as far as body connection, most of that work is what I've done on my own. Um, And I think there's just, I have so much physical and sexual trauma that I think the presence being in the presence of another person is just really frightening to talk about those things with an expectation that I'm supposed to drop into my body. Like you just said about EMDR. I want to be super, super, super loud and clear about this. There is not a specific thing across the board that works for everybody except safety. Yes. (laughs) Safety is the (laughs) one thing that is a must, but I speak a lot about EMDR because I had such a profound experience. But in that experience, I want to be very loud and vocal that there are many people who have had a strong response. And the thing that maybe it was a practitioner, maybe it wasn't, but the thing that's really deflating to a trauma survivor is when they're convinced that there's a movement or a thing, and it has to be done this way. That's not how trauma healing works. You and I are exchanging right now somatic work helped you so much somatic is something i have a really difficult time connecting with neither of our stories are discounted by having individual experiences and that's where we have got to expand the conversation around trauma healing
0: yes i couldn't agree more yeah it would be nice if it was that formulaic and we could just say like okay do this first and then this and then this and then you'll be great And I'm really grateful that I tried EMDR and actually getting into that incredibly flooded state to the point where I literally could not speak on several occasions was a really good indicator for me that, oh, wow, okay, you actually do have complex PTSD. This is a serious thing that needs your attention. And so I was able to find some other practices and modalities that worked for me. And I may not have ever gotten to that place without having those experiences. So it's sort of a funny thing where even the things that didn't end up being as helpful were still important steps along the path that I wouldn't trade.
1: Can I ask if your practitioner was supportive when you said that you did not, like you were not connecting with EMDR?
0: A little bit, but part of it too, where I was in my, my journey at that moment in time was that I was really afraid of giving any kind of feedback that could be seen as critical. I thought it was my issue. And so I just didn't say anything until it was too late in some cases. So I I really struggled with that. And that took me quite a few years, actually, to, to get to a place where I would even be able to say to a therapist, like, hey, we need to back up or like, this doesn't feel right or I'm starting to get overwhelmed. Those things were not even in my vocabulary at the time.
1: Yeah. I think if we can send this message to your listeners as well, the honor is on the therapist to have access to your story, period. We have been taught culturally to approach therapy almost like, I'm so sorry I have to be here. I'm sorry you have to listen to these stories. A healthy trauma-informed therapist is never going to step outside of the role of being a humble observer of your darkest moments. That has got to be a safe experience. And they're not gonna know more than you know about your story, ever, ever. There are parts of us that are working together, working against each other. We are carrying all of that inside of our bodies. We need that 50 minutes or an hour to be so safe and secure. We know this person is here to humbly observe and help me direct a path to find relief one of the things i do in my coaching sessions is when we close out five minutes before i check in with them and say how do you feel right now and they tell me and if they ever say a little anxious or whatever we talk through that anxiety we do not ever leave that session with something open-ended and I I look back on how often therapy, like in your situation, the fact that you carried that for so long, that's really painful to hear. There was already enough pain there that going to therapy should not be creating new avenues of other things to be addressed. It just shouldn't. That should always be a safe place where that person's an expert and offers incredible opportunity for you to fall into absolute safety, security, and then go where you needed to go with with their direction. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you you started to mention parts in that. And I I wanted to make sure that we have some time to talk about inner child work and and how you became interested in that and what role that's had in your own healing process.
1: Kind of the same. I had no interest in it at all. It was (laughs) glaring me in the face. It was like, if you don't do this, you're going to be miserable. The first my therapist explained that there was this six-year-old version of me. I think like so many other survivors, I had this perception of like, if I could get rid of that part of me, if I could cut him out of my life, I will feel so much better because of the stories that he's carried. And so he went through this long introduction of inner child work and I'm sure he was, you know, poetic and beautiful and sacred. And I listened and listened and listened. And he said, now, are you ready to bring the six-year-old in the room with us? And I was like, yes, bring that fucker in here. He (laughs) paused and said, wait, what? And I still had this idea of like, yeah, let's get rid of him. And he was just like, all right, let me start over and, you know, whatever. So I did, I did inner child work because I had to, it was part of this, Process, But what changed for me was about six years ago through a very painful set of circumstances where I received all of my childhood photos in the mail. And six months later I would look at them and I would go through them and it was just excruciatingly painful to go through those pictures. I just had a moment where I was sick of therapy that I felt like wasn't working and I took those pictures and I sorted through them from four years old all the way to 32. And I made three rows of pictures. And then I went to my computer and I printed off every poem and every quote, everything in a book that I've ever read that meant something to me. And I printed all those off around all those photos. And for a month, every night I would close the curtains, light the candles, And I would read, I would put my hand on one of those quotes or poems and I would read it out loud. And then I would put my hand on the picture that needed to hear that message the most. And it was so bizarre and so weird. And I had a couple of friends at the time I was leading a, a men's group in my home. And when they, they would come over and they saw it and I would just say, I'm not ready to talk about what this is, but please don't tell anybody what you saw here. And they were like, got it. That month changed my life. I learned about what I had carried by looking at those pictures and looking and saying, but, but what does he need now? What does he need from me to understand that that was never even supposed to happen? Like the, the pain and the trauma and the way that he shows up in my life now is because of prior experiences that are unresolved is for me, not knowing that he existed and not knowing the importance of how to embrace him and say, as scary as that was at five years old when you were being sexually abused by a neighbor, I'm 43. I know how to address that. You don't. So you're mine. I'm going to hold you so close to me where you feel so safe. And I'm going to be real loud about abusers and you never have to address this again. So when I started sharing a lot of my story online, the thing that resonated most with people is they would constantly say, tell me more about inner child work. And I always felt a little off. I felt off like, are people going to get it? If I explain this really bizarre relationship that I have with my younger selves and the way that I identify all of this stuff, this kind of self-taught process, how are they going to respond? And um, it was unreal. I, we did our first webinar a year ago. I opened it up and it sold out in two days. And I just thought, damn, this is what people really want to know more about. Well, great. I can tell you everything I know about inner child work and what that means to me. So that's when today we launched the course where um, it's a very in-depth view of inner child work, understanding who the inner child is, understanding who your inner child is, understanding what what they heard about their experiences that has shaped the way that they view life and how they're responding to our lives now. How that inner child is triggered by our job, certain relationships, relationships we have with people that hurt them when they were kids, and just understanding what all of that is. It's been amazing to see this community come together and just say, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, but something's resonating. Tell me more. And now we just have these this open dialogue about the fact that we all have these experiences that are unaddressed because of the impacts of when they happen it's not because our seven-year-old was weak it's because they were seven and there was no other way for them to process trauma other than to experience it as trauma and do any and everything they can to avoid it and never think about that again
0: yeah for people that want to look up your program what's the name of it
1: healing the younger you mm-hmm. you can go to my website dot or find me on instagram and it's right there in my in my link tree
0: Something that you've, I've seen you talk about this on social media and you just alluded to it a few minutes ago, which is this, this part about being out of communication with your family. Cause I think, unfortunately, in a lot of spheres, there's this idea that, you know, if you're healed, you have to forgive and you have to, you know, make amends and all of these things. And if you don't have a relationship with your family, that means your healing is incomplete and all of these messages have a pretty strong idea of how you feel about that, but I'd be very interested to hear you say more.
1: I talk about forgiveness and estrangement a lot because it's the reality for so many people that I would honestly say that considering what I just shared about inner child work, estrangement is the other piece that I've been shocked at how many people are estranged and the reasons why. What's so painful is this cultural idea about at the end of the day, family is all you've got, blood's thicker than water, which isn't even the real quote. Um, <clears throat> family's everything, honor the mother, the father. These ideas and these structures around family, family is wonderful. I mean, having close relationships where you feel safe, seen and heard doesn't get better than that. But that's not reality for so many survivors. And it's just another category where who's running the narrative that judges other people based on how they feel about their families. I, to this day, I hate the holidays. They are so painful. They, less, they get become less and less painful every year. And I think people just don't get the impacts of what it means to recognize if your parents were your key abusers and you've lived with that inside of your world your whole life and then you did every damn thing you knew to do, to somehow bridge a bigger relationship. And they said, no, thanks. Family is not all you've got at the end of the day. And blood is not thicker than water. And there's more to that story. And it's really trying to expand the conversations of what it means for people who have experienced trauma so that they don't feel like I felt for so long out of place. Christmas would Christmas rolls around, I disappear. Like, I don't want to talk. I don't want to text. I don't want to think about, you know, how painful... That time of the year is for people who have connection and safety and security, and then I have to hear the impacts of what it's supposed to look like and recognizing I did everything that I could to make this different, and it wasn't an option for me. So the forgiveness piece, I just think that basically religion uses forgiveness to scapegoat uh, survivors and puts more pressure back on them to say you are responsible to do something the hell you are this happened to you you don't owe anyone anything other than your own healing and if that includes some level of forgiveness in your perception of what forgiveness is that's great and if it doesn't then don't I get raked over the coals anytime I post about that on social media it's always a hundred percent a white Christian who is telling me, Hey, I'm unfollowing you because you're living in unforgiveness or, I mean, we're talking about posts. One one post said, you know, there's a, there's a kid in me who from five to 14 was sexually abused. And I just don't think he gives a shit about whether or not I forgive who harmed him. He wants me close to him. And then there were several Christians who would leave remarks of just like, I'm unfollowing you because you're living in unforgiveness. And my thought was that's your response to hearing about a young child being abused for nine years. Like that is the, the level of depth that you have in the level of conscious awareness of you, what a horrific response to someone sharing something like that. But that also shows you the damage in ways that forgiveness is being used as a hierarchy to say it's the path and that means this. The hell it does. Yeah. Forgiveness is a private process and it's nobody's business other than the person who's been harmed.
0: Yeah, and I, I know you said at some point on one of your posts – nobody chooses this. Like everyone wants to be close to their parents in, in childhood. And so right. f- for someone to get to the point that not talking to family feels better than talking to family, you got to consider what led them to that place. This isn't just an arbitrary decision that's, that the people make.
1: Yeah. I think what I said was if you can't handle the fact that there are people who are estranged from their families, you definitely won't be able to handle the decades that led up to what brought them to that decision. Yes. And it's just being able to say your perception of what family is, is harmful to someone who doesn't have a family. And it's not, it's, it's unfair. And and, and listen, I am all for traditions and close family units and think it's beautiful and wonderful. I just think that, If you don't have the capacity to understand that while you may have a close connection to your family, that someone else had a different experience, it makes me question what security and family is to you, because that doesn't make sense. It seems like you're very limited by a bigger narrative or in somehow or in some way feel a threat that you can't embrace someone else's ability to say, actually, for me, this is what's healthiest and best.
0: I think threat is a key word there. I think it can feel really threatening for many people to to consider looking at their own childhoods, to consider looking at the ways that their parents may have hurt them. That can be a really, really overwhelming prospect for a lot of people.
1: And I appreciate that. And I understand that. But uh, n- not our jobs to carry their insecurity.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Speaking of getting sort of trolled on social media, I I would be interested to hear a little bit about your experience being so open with your story in such a public way. And it sounds like you've had some not so good experiences with that, but I'm imagining that you've also had some really beautiful experiences too.
1: My experience on social media is 90 something percent positive I don't think I knew there were so many other people who could relate to what I thought was the really bizarre thoughts that live inside of me and the way that I process trauma and the way that I process relationships in life. I had no idea that there were so many other people that would say, you just articulate something that I've never been able to say, but that registers for me. I also have a lot of freedom and then I'm speaking... As a survivor, I'm not speaking as a psychotherapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, social worker, therapist. I am a licensed coach, but that coaching certificate has nothing to do with the information that I understand about trauma. I didn't learn a whole lot, you know, in that space. I, this is stuff that's been self taught in my own journey of you know 25 years. So, <clears throat> as a whole, I took a break from social media last summer, and this was really beautiful. A couple of um, my friends who have really large platforms reached out. And um, I just said, I don't think I can do this social media thing. I said, it's just, it's too much. Those friends reached out and they said, what you don't see that we see is that you have built a community. We have followers. You have connection. And I started to observe and I thought, well, then what does that look like for this to be as safe as possible? So one of the things that I did is I cut my DMs off. I do not DM. I don't want to hear about someone's trauma in a private message unless we're in a coaching, coaching session. And so cutting the DMs off was wildly helpful. I also used the time to connect with other survivors in the comment section and cheer them on. Just acknowledge, like, I know you're here and I'm glad you're here. And the stories that people share, it's unreal. It's unreal. So, for me, it's been overall a really positive, powerful experience, very affirming, of uh, realizing like we are not alone. And like I said, I just had no idea how many other people were interested in inner child work, and had no idea how many other people were estranged from families. And that has been just really heartwarming to sadly hear their stories because they're pretty extreme and traumatic but also comforting knowing like, damn, I was never alone this whole time. I was never alone. And I had no idea.
0: Did Instagram come before coaching or were you coaching already? And in what role would you say that helping others has played in your own healing?
1: So I've coached for years. My first round was many years ago. I volunteered for a nonprofit that helped people launch their small business. Loved that process and uh so i've done a level of coaching for some time i've always led groups cuz i've loved that connection that's gone on for probably 15 years and then i just actually got a certification a few years ago and again i don't know that that certification actually taught me a whole lot about you know how to connect with other people and make them feel safe over the last couple of years it's really been certainly influenced by instagram uh being able to have the connection with others and that's where, you know, a large chunk of my newer clients have come from.
0: And has being in that role had an impact on your own healing process?
1: It's very challenging. I mean, you, you just, I think the first thing that I learned very quickly is you're not going to be able to care for others the way you want if you're not taking care of yourself. Yes, It's <laughs> going to feel like such an incredible threat to try and show up in a space and care for other people if you're not taking care of yourself.
0: Yeah, I really feel like in many ways that for that reason, it has been such a powerful healing experience for me because I know that I can't do my job. If I'm not also seeing my own practitioner every week, if I'm not also doing the self-care work, if I'm not showing up for myself, if I'm not connected to myself, it's just not going to work. And so by engaging in those those kinds of connections and those kinds of relationships, it it really does keep me honest in a very real way.
1: It really does. And I think too, going back to the the whole conversation around safety, if people just knew that they had a place where someone was not going to interrupt them, someone was not going to project on them, and everything that they said was held in complete confidence, that alone is so calming to the nervous system. That alone is so welcoming to say, you can exhale in this space. You're good. You're safe.
0: What is something that makes you feel hopeful about the world?
1: Something that makes me feel hopeful. um, My first thought is women. Hmm. The Bill Cosby being released a couple of days ago brings just a visceral reaction to those women who stood up and I think probably one of the biggest surprising things about my life over the last several years has been when you are in a position of conversion therapy, women are treated as an object and they're treated as this thing that is attainable. And I was taught that I had to have these like macho male relationships because I didn't have a good relationship with my dad. And therefore by having a, better relationship with strong masculine men whatever the hell that means it would stabilize that and it would also open up my desire to be you know in a relationship with women and i was also taught you know that women were not allowed to have access to me on a i couldn't invest in a a male-female relationship because it's confusing and it's this and it's all these other things i am surrounded by amazing women and I think that that's one of the, the aches that I have is seeing that part of me come alive. We do this local hiking group here, and sometimes we have you know fifteen people. It's just all people who follow me on social media here in Denver, and um, it will take like days will go by, and I'll realize I was the only guy, mm. <laughs> and does not faze me one bit. I just think that learning more about I just relate to. How overlooked women have felt, and how dismissed their stories have been, and how they really are carrying the fucking torches for just about everything, and still dismissed, and still gaslit, and still have their abuser released from prison after serving one fifth of the term after they bravely stood up. It's just, I think that that women make me hopeful. I think women just knowing, like, I feel safe with women leadership obsessed with AOC, obsessed mm. <laughs> with uh, Kabbalah. Like just, yeah, uh, was so cool. I, I think that's my honest answer. That, that, that question took me off guard, but I would just say women, women mm. make me feel hopeful.
0: I love that. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing with us today. And I just, I couldn't recommend following Nate on Instagram more highly. Where else can people find you?
1: Nate com is my website and that will lead you to everything else, the course. And um, I do have a, I think it's 11 page inner child guide that you can get there. That's a great introduction to inner child work. That's I think helped a lot of people. And then that website will direct you to all of my social media. My name's too complicated to try and share that. So just go to the website and it'll lead you everywhere else.
0: For the record, how do we pronounce your last name?
1: I think it's postal <laughs> weight, but I have a lot of followers in the UK who have been very responsive in saying it's Postlethwaite. And they're right. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's where my name originates from. So they're right. But I've said Postlethwaite my whole life, and I'm not planning on changing the way (laughs) that I say my last name.
0: Got it. Well, thank you so much. Really a pleasure.
1: It's an honor. Thank you.